Well, let's take our Bibles and turn together to John chapter 14. Uh, we're breaking in here in this chapter to the last, the last conversation that Jesus has at any length with his disciples. Uh, Judas has gone. Judas Iscariot has left the room. There's an air of increasing tension among the disciples. Uh, they, uh, they know very well the way that things are going in the, the nation's capital. There they are in the middle of Jerusalem. All the talk is of Jesus going to be arrested. Judas has already initiated that. Jesus has told them that this will happen. He's repeated it again and again. They won't take it in. They can't process uh, that revelation by Jesus. And there is this turmoil of emotion that's going on in, within them. Jesus knew that turmoil himself. The language of turmoil is used about him. He'd said that in chapter 12, my, my soul is troubled. The language is torn up, churned up within me. He uses that same language of them, of them in chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. We find ourselves like that sometimes, don't we, in our lives? We find our stomach churning. We find our hearts skipping a beat. We find an overwhelming sense of dread perhaps coming upon us for whatever reason. Maybe you've been there in that position. What they were facing, of course, was the entire disruption of their lives. For three years, they'd been with him. For three years, they'd been his daily companions. They traveled all over that region of Palestine many, many times, visiting towns and villages, being part of the action as Jesus, wherever he went, healed hundreds, thousands of people. It was an awesome time to be alive. It was... A vibrant moment to be alive and to be with him. Now he kept, keeps telling them that he's leaving. He's going. He's going away from them. They're going to be left. Later on in this uh, conversation, he will say, you feel as if you're going to be orphaned. And you will feel like that. But I will not leave you as, as orphans. And so the issue in their mind is, why is he leaving them? It's a serious issue. For him, leaving them meant going to the cross. And having gone to the cross and then been raised again from the dead, he would be leaving them again. He would be leaving them finally when he ascended up to heaven. Then he would be leaving them as we are left, where we find ourselves today, this evening. On this Advent Sunday, we find ourselves located where they would be located after he had gone to heaven between Jesus come and Jesus coming. Between the first and the second advent, caught in this interim period where Jesus who has been here and has acted as he has done and performed the miracles he performed and then left us to go back to heaven. We're living between that period and that period when he will come again personally, in power, in glory at the end of history. And it's speaking into their troubled minds that Jesus not only just holds their hand, as it were, to sustain them during the period, but he tries to bring his truth to bear upon them. 
they're going to forget much of it, but they'll forget, they won't forget the chief points of what he has to say. In fact, later on, he'll promise them that the Spirit will come and remind them, because they'll need reminded, of what he said to them this evening. So he says that he's going. He's going to prepare a place for them. Where is Jesus tonight? We often use the language, Jesus is with me. Wherever I am, there Jesus is. And there's a sense in which that's true in that the Spirit of Jesus is with you wherever you are. But where is Jesus tonight? He, when he assumed our humanity, assumed a humanity like ours, that humanity is not ubiquitous. That humanity is not everywhere. It is in one place. That humanity of Jesus has a specific location this evening. Where is he? Well, he's in the dwelling place of God. He's in that place where God is most intensely present, where he is at home, if you will. He is in the Father's house. Elsewhere, that place, for example, in Hebrews 12, is described as the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, that celestial city, that holy city that will one day come out of heaven from God in Revelation 21 and verse 2. It is to that city that we depart when we depart this life. When we close our eyes here, we open our eyes in that city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. When we say our last farewell here, we say our first hello to that place where saints immortal dwell, the spirits of just men and women made perfect around the throne of God in heaven. And where Jesus is, tis heaven there. And so we talk about heaven, we talk about heaven as the place where everything is perfect and everything is real, real in a way that this is not real. This world we live in, of course, it is real. This desk is here. I can thump it and make a noise to make a point. I can raise my voice and it will resound around this building. This is real. But this is passing. But heaven is real. And where Jesus is, tis heaven there. And it's from there that he promises the disciple, disciples he will come again and gather his elect, take the power and reign. That where I am, there you will be also. That's the context. And on this Advent Sunday, we celebrate, we rejoice to know that that is our living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we are going towards that destination. History is moving inexorably towards that goal. Everything is in a great journey towards the end of all things and the beginning of everything when Jesus comes again. Now, having told them then that he's leaving and returning to his father's house, and that his father's house is home to them, he urges them to believe. In the meantime, let not your hearts be troubled. In the meantime, believe in God, believe also in me. He then goes on to say, verse 4, you know the way to where 
I am going. Surely after all this time, he says to them, surely after listening to all my sermons and all my teaching and my daily conversation, surely you've managed to work out the way to where I am going. He'd repeatedly taught them the way that he had to go. He had repeatedly spoken to them about the crucifixion, the betrayal, the trial, the false accusations. He would be crucified dead and buried. He'd be lifted up on a cross. He had told them that over and over again. That was the way he had to go. He had spoken to them about his way. But now Thomas asks him a question that isn't about his way, but about their way. He says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? I like Thomas. Thomas, Thomas is my kind of person. Thomas, with Thomas, there is no pious cant, no pretense to understand when he manifestly doesn't understand. He isn't prepared to take second, uh, second-hand uh, advice or second-hand news. Thomas is the kind of person who asks the question that is in everybody else's mind. And I'm very pleased that on this occasion he presses the matter. He says to Jesus, misunderstanding him, of course, Jesus having spoken about his own way, that is the way Jesus was taking, Thomas wants to know Thomas's way. How do I get there? How do we get there? Could you give us a roadmap, Jesus? Could you give us directions, Jesus? And the Lord is very gracious in taking him from where he is in his thinking to where Jesus wants him to get in the end. First of all, he tells them about their way to God and our way to God. And by doing so, he teaches them and us why his way is uniquely different from ours and theirs. Listen to what Jesus says to him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We come across language here that we find repeatedly in John's Gospel. In the Greek, ego I me literally means I, I am, I, I am. We find this language in the Old Testament. We find this language as the language by which the God of Israel identifies himself. When the God of Israel is identifying himself through Moses to the Israelites in Egypt, he sends Moses to them and he says, You tell them, I am has sent you. What is your name then? What will I tell them? What name will I give to them? I am that I am. And when in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah speaking or, or quoting, speaking on behalf of God, and we're hearing the voice of God in Isaiah, for example, 45, we hear this very phrase, I, I am, I, I am God, and there is no other. Chapter 44, I, I am the first, I am the last, besides me there is no other. Chapter 48, I am, I am he, I am the first, I am the last. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is ego I, me, I, I am. 
And here in John's Gospel, Jesus deliberately takes the language, the self-identifying language of the God of Israel. He takes it and he uses it himself repeatedly, over and over again, before Abraham was. I, I am. I, I am the Good Shepherd. I, I am the way, he says. Jesus Christ is self-identifying as the God of Israel. And that wasn't missed by these disciples. And Jesus' answer to Thomas's question takes us to the very core of his entire gospel. I, I am the way. These words spoken by one who was on the way to an ignominious death, the shame of a Roman cross, the death of a despised, debased criminal, and yet he is boldly saying that he is the only way to the Father. He has come from God, and he is the only way to God. The way to heaven is therefore Jesus himself. The way to heaven is Jesus himself. There are all kinds of echoes of Isaiah in this passage. Isaiah 40 verse 3 in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There in Isaiah 40, the Lord is proclaiming a great exodus greater than the original one in which the people of God will be led to their inheritance, the promised land. And the way is a highway that will deliver them to the promised land, will take them where they're going to the promised land. And Jesus here has been speaking about the promised land. He's been speaking about what the promised land pointed to, the, the heavenly land, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Father's house, the ultimate fulfillment of the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. And as in Isaiah, the way to Zion is equated with the coming of God himself, both these elements are drawn together. I, I am the way. I am the way. You come to the Father through me. You get back to Zion through me. I am the way because I am the truth. Spoken, I remind you, by one who's about to be condemned by lying witnesses. Spoken by one who is generally not being believed by his own people, even by his own brothers. I am the truth. He's saying that he's the only reliable one. The one who says, who, he sa who is who he says he is, the one who does what he says he will do. He's the truth. <clears throat> Earlier on in the first chapter, we read that he is the word made flesh and was full of grace and truth. That grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Come to me, he says, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I testify to the truth. Those who believe me believe the truth. You're either for the truth or you're against the truth by being either for Jesus or against Jesus. 
Throughout this gospel, ultimate reality is found in Jesus. He is the revealer of ultimate truth, ultimate and absolute truth, believable truth. It comes from the lips of Jesus, not from the lips of a, a human being like myself, not from a preacher, not even from the church, but from Jesus. It comes as the truth of God, and because he is the truth, he is the life. He says, I'm the life. Spoken by one, you remember, who within 24 hours will be a battered corpse, resting in a dark tomb, sealed by the authorities. And yet, nonetheless, he says, he is the life that comes from God. Earlier on in the gospel, we're told that he is the source of all human life, and then later that he is the source of eternal life to his people, to those who believe. In chapter 1, the word made flesh was life. Here he says, I am the life. Faith in him shatters the barrier of sin and death, blasts open the road that leads to eternal life in the kingdom of God. He is the road that leads to life. To follow Jesus is to know the truth and to enter into life that lasts forever. 20 billion years from tonight, Jesus' people will be as more alive than you are sitting here in a dying body in this room this evening. To know the truth and to have life beyond the grave are the true two great goals of humankind. People want to know truth and they'd love to live forever. And here Jesus tells us that the very essence of truth and life and therefore the only way of salvation is to be found in him. He doesn't just say, there's the way. He says, I am the way. And he goes on to say, no one comes to the Father except through me. So he's the one to be trusted. And you can see it was because of the way that he took. We've seen this right from the very beginning as we've been studying John's gospel. Chapter 1, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Chapter 13, uh, he knew his hour had come to depart out the world. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's because of who he is, the way he took, the way of the cross, the way of the Lamb of God, the way of bearing our sin, the way of enduring our punishment. Being lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness to bring healing to those who were dead and dying. The way of the good shepherd who goes out looking for the sheep and lays down his life for his own sheep. The way of the one designated by the high priest as the one who would die for the nation and for all the scattered children of God that they might live and be safe forever. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want you to notice that's the gospel. You and I cannot be the gospel to anybody. Some of this nonsense language you hear buzzing around evangelical circles. We need to live the gospel. Or we need to be the gospel to these people. We need to go out there and be the gospel. You can only be the gospel if you can bear their sins and take their wrath and die their death and rise again. Because that's the gospel. You can't be the gospel, only Jesus is the gospel. And we tell that story. That's 
proclaiming the gospel, we point them to Jesus. And you see, these words of Jesus are astonishingly exclusive. Where did we learn exclusivity? We learned it from him. He is the only way. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are no caveats. There are no holes in that. That's an absolute statement. Remember, that statement is made in a pluralistic society, a society in which there are multiple religions, multiple philosophies, multiple gods. It wasn't a popular idea then. It was no more popular then than it is now. The apostle uh, Peter, on the day of Pen- uh, earlier on in, in, book, in the book of Acts in chapter 4, he says to a group of people, he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. One name. The apostle Paul writing to people in Galatia, a pagan area with pagan gods, he writes to them this, If we... Me as an apostle, the church, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. And this exclusivity of Jesus is still one of the great offenses of Christianity to the world. There is no escaping it. He is the only way to the Father. Later on, the apostle John would say there is one God... And one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. There is no place in Scripture for any other mediator. There is no place in Scripture for a mediatrix, that is, a female mediator between man and God, or between man and her son, or anybody else. There is one mediator. No one can come to the Father except through me. We have to make that clear. You can't believe the Bible. Maybe maybe the church's tradition teaches something that is out of accord with the Bible. But here is Jesus. We are not above our pay grade. I don't care who you are, whether you're a cardinal or an archbishop or a pope, it's above your pay grade to go against what Jesus says. No one can come to the Father except through me. There is no other mediator. Thomas Akempis, the author of the book, The Imitation of Christ, puts it like this. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. So in answer to Jesus' question, or Thomas's question, how can I come to know the Father? How can I come to that place where you're going, Jesus says, only through me. But underlying Thomas's question, there is another perception, a misconception, a misunderstanding of what is going on here. And so Jesus goes beyond that, verse 7, and elaborates a bit. He says to Thomas this, If you had known me, You would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What is he saying to them? He's saying to them, because they knew Jesus, they knew God. Because they had seen Jesus, 
They had seen God. Jesus connects their knowledge of the Father and their life in fellowship with the Father, not only to the future, but above all to the experience they have received through their connection to him. This would be the secret for the coming church. This would be the key to the continuing knowledge of God for the church today. We know God by coming to know Jesus. The faith of the church rests on the revelation given to these men in this upper room as they hear Jesus speaking directly to them. It is their testimony, their eye and ear testimony to what Jesus is doing and saying on which the church is built. The foundation has been laid and it's laid here in scripture. Now of course what, what's happening here doesn't come out of the blue in verse 7. It's rooted in the context of Judaism. In Judaism the hope of Israel was that one day we might see and know God. That was the great hope. That we might see and know God. And with the coming of the word made flesh. That is the coming of Christ. That first Christmas. What John has said from the very beginning of this gospel is. That people have both seen him and known him. They had not seen God as he is in himself. No man can see God as he is in himself and live. So what has God done? He wants you to see him. So what is he to do? God is invisible. He has to come visible. Sometimes he become visible in some display of, of uh, you know, a kind of light and noise show. The, you know, fireworks there in Mount Sinai. He kind of done some really kind of really groovy way out stuff. Some of you can remember when people actually used that word groovy. I read it in the dictionary. I never remember using it myself until this very moment. There you go. Uh, and, uh, but, but there are those, the great light and power show in, in, in various points. There's the great pillar of fire and the great pillar of cloud and, and the brightness, the brightness that succeeds the brightness of the sun was all meant to kind of display something of the power and splendor of the invisible God. But God did his greatest thing when he took our humanity into the Godhead when in a miracle bigger than the miracle of the creation of the universe God in his son became human flesh why did he do that so that you might see God the invisible God became man so that you might see God. Jesus is saying to these men, you know me, you know God. You've seen me, you've seen God. Throughout the Old Testament, this language of knowledge is covenantal language. Indeed, it's covenantal language throughout the ancient Near East. And in the Old Testament, people are constantly being urged, know the Lord, be still and know that I am God. Follow on to know the Lord. They look forward to a day in which all God's people will know him from the least to the greatest. And to a further day, a day that's still ahead for us, when the earth will be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. That's what we're looking forward to. How will they have that knowledge of God? Well, here's how the Apostle John puts it. 
Jesus has been talking about his coming again, his second coming. This is Advent. We look back to his first coming. We look forward to his second coming. And the Apostle John says, when he appears, that is the second time, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall see him as he is. That was the greatest revelation to these men. And after the resurrection, the world changed for these disciples. You can see hints of it even in John's gospel. In chapter 3, we speak of what we know. In chapter 4, we worship what we know. Chapter 7, you don't know him, but I know him. Chapter 8, I know where I came from. Chapter 10, I know my sheep, my sheep know me. Chapter 17, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, by coming to know Jesus, we come to know God. That was the reality of these men there in that upper room. These men who were there, who became the, the eye and ear witnesses whose testimony we find in the New Testament scripture. And through their, their work and through the revelation of God in the Old Testament, all scripture speaks of this one who has come. That's the objective truth. But as yet, these men at that moment... These men that night, with the Lord Jesus himself sitting there talking to them, did not know what they had. A lot of what he says is going to go in one ear and out the other. It's going to go over their head. That's the reality. Sometimes we come to church and it all goes over our head. It goes over your head because your head's nodding, that's why. I wonder if you know what you have. That's my question as we come to a close this evening. I wonder if you know what you have. You know Jesus. You may have known him since birth. His, may be, his name may be as familiar to you as the lucky charms you have for breakfast in the morning. But do you know what you have? Do you grasp who he really is? Do you realize that the knowledge of Jesus is the knowledge of God? To see that truth, to, for that penny to drop, is the equivalent of truly knowing Jesus. What we read here in these verses this evening is nothing less than a claim to full deity. He is claiming to be, he's claiming to be the way and the destination. He's not simply a manifestation of God. He is God manifested. That's his clear claim. And he leaves us, I think, with this dilemma. Perhaps if you're not a Christian this evening, this is your dilemma. Could anyone who claimed this be a good person if they knew it to be untrue? In other words, was Jesus good? Could someone who claimed this and believed it be sane? I mean, on the, C.S. Lewis said, somebody who said this and, and, 
and believed that they could be insane. They could be on the level of a man who said, I am a poached egg. Is Jesus sane? Does he sound like a sane person? Could someone who claimed this, knowing it to be untrue with a view to deceiving you, be anything other than the greatest deceiver in history? And the reality is those who read the stories of Jesus and listen to what he says don't see an insane person. They don't see a deceiver. They don't see a liar. What do they see? They see someone believable. Believable. And if Jesus is saying this and it's true, your eternity hangs on it. Your position and state 10 billion years from tonight rests upon it if it's true then get with the program if it's true then will you commit yourself to Jesus will you throw yourself in Jesus will you take the instruction he gives right at the very beginning in verse 1 believe in God believe in me believe in me you believe in God believe in God you must believe in me because no one can come to the Father except through me. Well, let's pray together as we draw to a close. Father, thank you that we have in the revelation of your Son <clears throat> the way to go, the truth to know, the life to live. We pray that you would uh, give that to us in proportion to our need this evening. And if it, for the first time we... We find ourselves confronting these realities. Help us to process it. We pray, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to embrace, and our wills to do what Jesus says. We pray in his strong name. Amen.